The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. So we're going to look at uh, tongues in the New Testament. And we're going to start by uh, looking at the book of Acts. You don't, I don't know that you have to turn there, but if you want to, go ahead. It'll be Acts chapter 2. Here's, here's the amazing thing about, about tongues. Um, is the gift of tongues a controversial issue in the church today? Some of you are like, I think so. Um, it is. It, it's, it's been uh, hugely controversial, uh, really since the 1960s, and you could probably even push it back farther than that. Uh, the reason I say it's been controversial since the 60s is because up until that time, tongues uh, were basically reserved for what we would consider Pentecostal denominations, right? So assemblies of God, four square, stuff like that. And so tongues, that's kind of what Pentecostals did. Pentecostals were defined denominationally. But in the 1960s, um, you had the rise of the charismatic movement, which actually uh, sort of didn't pay any attention to denominational borders. And so you had charismatic Anglicans and charismatic Catholics and charismatic Lutherans and charismatic Methodists and, uh, and in, indeed, even charismatic Baptists. Um, I don't know that I've ever heard of a charismatic Presbyterian, but you'll never know. So anyway, you had sort of this overflow. And so that's really one of the things that made it uh, more controversial. And in fact, I think I may have mentioned that one of the earliest uh, Bible studies I ever went to as a, as a, actually still unconverted, but as a Roman Catholic, was uh, a charismatic Catholic Bible study with my mom when I was, I think, 13 years old. And so tongues are, um, are very controversial, but here's the amazing thing. They're mentioned three times in the book of Acts, and the only other time is in our section in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Okay. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John don't talk about tongues. Romans doesn't talk about tongues. 2 Corinthians doesn't talk about tongues. You, you get the point. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, the Thessalonians, uh, Hebrews, uh, uh, on all the way through the book of Revelation. So it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's sort of... Um, uh, uh, just sort of narrowed down to two books of the Bible and then just very few references. The most extensive, of course, ends up being 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we'll see that in a, in a minute. So let me, just, um, let me just paint these pictures for you real quickly in, in Acts. So Acts chapter 2, um, the disciples are in the upper room. The day of Pentecost had fully come, right? That's the language that Luke uses. By the way, the, the language in the Greek text is, is, is clear. When the day of Pentecost was fulfilled, right? So there is sort of a promise fulfillment theme going on. The disciples are in the upper room, 120 of them, and the Spirit of God comes, and he comes like a mighty rushing wind, 
tongues of fire resting upon them, and they all begin speaking in tongues. And, of course, we know in that passage that uh, since it was the Feast of Pentecost, you had Jews from the Diaspora that were all in Jerusalem, and they were there, and they heard in their own languages the mighty deeds of God being spoken by people who didn't know those languages, all right? And that was the miracle of Pentecost. And then um, Acts chapter 8 doesn't mention tongues, but I think there's good reason to believe that when Philip preaches the gospel to the Samaritans, that, um, that they actually speak in tongues when the apostles come. And one of the reasons I think that is because not only of a pattern that I'll show you in a little bit, but probably more importantly, you remember Simon the magician. What does he want to do? He wants to actually offer money to the apostles for this great power. Well, what great power? I think he saw actually the apostles laying hands on the believing Samaritans, and then uh, they spoke in tongues. Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter receives a vision uh, while he's... Uh, by the way, Acts chapter 10 is, is, is quite humorous. There's a lot of humor in the Bible, but you have to sort of be um, uh, sort of in the know to get the humor, right? So Peter is staying at somebody's house in Acts 10. Does anybody remember? It wasn't a holiday inn or a, a comfort inn. He was staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. You know what tanners do? They skin animals and tan their hides. Okay? Not a profession for a Jewish person. You do understand that, right? You understand being a tanner was actually a despised profession among the Jews because it was considered unclean. So here's Peter staying in this guy's house. So Jewish law would say everything this guy touches is unclean. It's like the coronavirus, and then Peter's touching everything. And so all the contamination is spreading. And Peter gets this vision, and the vision is all these animals in a sheet, and rise, Peter, kill, and eat, which is the great hunting mandate in the Bible. And, um, and then he says, well, I can't. It's, it's almost hypocritical. I can't. I've not let anything unclean ever go into these Jewish lips my whole life, as he says that living at Simon the Tanner's house. Okay? So then he says, don't let what I've called clean be called unclean. And then somebody from Cornelius's house, Cornelius was a, a Gentile uh, a centurion. By the way, he was uh, considered a God-fearer. Okay? So he worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? But he hadn't submitted to circumcisions. He was considered a God-fearer, but he's a Gentile. He sends somebody to Peter's house. It is absolutely, um, uh, what's that good German word, verboten? Okay. Um, absolutely forbidden for a Jew to go into the house of a Gentile. But Peter just got the vision, so he goes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius gathers all of his friends and family, so the house is jam-packed. Peter starts preaching while Peter is preaching. The Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his household, and they all begin speaking in tongues. 
absolutely crucial. Peter says, what prevents them from being baptized since they receive the Holy Spirit in the same way we did? Okay. Next event in, uh, in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 19. Uh, Paul gets up to Ephesus. So, by the way, if you were a Jew from Jerusalem, Ephesus would be considered the virtually the uttermost parts of the earth, all right? And so here's P, uh, uh, Paul, and he goes and he meets a group of disciples, but they hadn't quite heard the full story yet. And so Paul asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And you remember what these Ephesian disciples said. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, right? We've been baptized in the baptism of John. So then what Paul does is Paul preaches the full gospel to them. And by that, I don't mean the Pentecostal full gospel. I mean the full gospel of Christ. And upon hearing that, then they uh, uh, speak in tongues, all right? So those are the three, and then possibly four, examples of speaking in tongues in the book of Acts, all right? The only other place that we have speaking in tongues, of course, is in 1 Corinthians, and we see uh, starting in chapter 12. We've already covered these verses, but let me just refresh you here. Um, And remember, why is Paul talking about tongues to the Corinthians? Because they were missing out on such a great blessing? No, because they were abusing the gift, and Paul is trying to correct them in the way that they use the gift, right? So 1 Corinthians 12, first time tongues is mentioned is in this list of 8 to 10, and you see in verse 10, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, to another distinguishing spirits, to another kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Now what's interesting is that in Paul's little list here in 8 through 10, tongues and interpretation get put at the end, right? So you got to think about what he's doing. He's orienting the Corinthians, to start thinking more accurately about tongues. Because tongues seemed to be the, um, the showy gift. Okay? Um, helps is not the showy gift. Administration is not the showy gift. In fact, not even teaching is the showy gift compared to speaking in tongues. Right? Tongues actually put the person on display. So Paul's going to orient them to a, a perspective on tongues that they're not really accustomed to. So then you go down the rest of the chapter and then notice verse 28. And Paul's giving this hierarchy here. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, and various kinds of tongues. See, you, by the way, when he says first, second, third, you understand he's giving a, um, a hierarchy of importance. And then he gets down to the end, and what's, what, what actually follows helps and administrations? 
tongues and interpretation, of, or just tongues there. Uh, verse 30, all do not have gifts of healing, do they? The answer is no. All do not speak with tongues, do they? No. All do not interpret, do they? No. Then you go to chapter 13, and Paul will mention tongues one time here, actually twice. Verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, the other time that he uses tongues is in verse 8, if there are tongues, they will cease. Now, This will, this will challenge you to see how well you were listening back when we went to, through 1 Corinthians 13. Is it safe to assume that Paul means in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, that tongues actually is just angelic language, tongues of angels? What do you think? By the way, that is a claim. That is a claim that... Speaking in tongues is speaking in a heavenly language and uh, uh, the language of angels, okay? I don't think that's what Paul's talking about at all. And the reason is, is because in the first three verses of chapter 13, he uses hyperbole, exaggeration. If I know, have all knowledge and know all mysteries, is that even a possibility? It's not even a possibility. It's just hypothetical. It's just showing how important or how vital love is. So I don't think Paul's setting up some sort of, um, uh, you know, category of the tongues of angels, right? So uh, I speak the German tongue. I speak uh, Swedish and uh, I speak angelic, right? Um, I, I can communicate with Michael, okay? It's not what he's, not what he's doing, all right? Uh, then the, uh, the most extensive ends up being chapter 14, and uh, remember, we just went through this, so he's juxtaposing tongues and prophecy. Verse 2, the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. All right? So keep that verse in mind. Okay? Verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Keep that in mind also. Verse 6, but now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will, I, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Keep that in mind. Verse 13, therefore, let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I'll sing with the spirit and sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit, which I assume is tongues at that point, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks since he does not know what you are saying? Verse 22, so then tongues are for a sign. Not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and the ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Verse 26. 
What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, each has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at the most, and each in turn, and one must interpret. If there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let himself speak, let him speak to himself and to God. Boom, that's the end. That's what the Bible says about tongues, right? Right there. So we're done early. No. All right. So now the purpose of tongues. So I'm going to say, I've mentioned this before, but it's important. Oftentimes, the very, the very notion of why tongues, right? Why is speaking in tongues, why is this? a gift, what does it mean, right? Nothing happens in the New Testament that doesn't have Old Testament roots, Old Testament origins. We understand what's going on in the New Testament by understanding the Old Testament. You, you do understand the, the way the books fit together, right? So if you, if, if, you, if you come to the New Testament and you act as if a lot of this stuff just, just sort of dropped down out of heaven you're going to end up missing sort of the significance of a lot of things. So, uh, first of all, we could say the first purpose of tongues and, and is this. It's a sign of the universal gospel becoming universal in application. So, track with me here. Does anybody know Acts 1.8? Acts 1.8, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Did I miss something? you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Notice, think geographically, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. By the way, those are geographically expanding circles. All right? So think of, you could say, Something like um, uh, Carson City, um, northern Nevada, North America, uttermost parts of the earth, right? So this expanding sense of geographical location, all right? Now, that's the pattern of evangelism in Acts 1.8, okay? There's a lot that we could say about it, okay? For instance... Do the apostles and disciples get stuck? The answer is yes. Where do they get stuck? In Jerusalem. How does God get them unstuck? Persecution. They're stuck in Jerusalem. In order to get them to Samaria, what has to happen? 
the persecution of Stephen's martyrdom, and then the persecution of the church. So the persecution is what God uses to kick them to get going to the next geographical circle, all right? But here's the interesting thing. Tongues actually follows the pattern of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. When you think about what, what happens with tongues, first of all, the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles, the disciples in, in, in the upper room in Jerusalem, right? Now, what are they? What, what uh, uh, those people in the upper room, they're all Jews, okay? They're all Jewish people, okay? The, 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 the Spirit comes upon them, they start speaking in tongues. Who gets saved that day? Jewish people, okay? By the way, the foundation of the New Covenant Church is Jewish people, <laughs> all right? And so you have Acts 2 with the, um, the sign of the Spirit. So, th- by the way, just as sure as in the Old Testament, people would, uh, the Spirit would come upon them, and the sign that it came upon them is that they would prophesy, for instance, like with Saul or the 70 elders. So in Acts, the sign that the Spirit has come upon them is speaking in tongues, So he comes on the Jews who believe in Jesus. Who are the next ones? The Samaritans, okay? Now, again, it doesn't explicitly say this, but this is the next move of the gospel. So remember what I said, the universal gospel, preach my gospel to all nations, becoming universal in application. So it goes from the Jews then to the Samaritans. Who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans were the ethnic half-breeds of the ancient world. The Samaritans came about because of Assyria's um, POW policy. So the uh, the uh, Israelites of the northern kingdom, after the Assyrian invasion, they are actually deported, okay? And then you have other POWs, from the Assyrian conquests that are brought in to the northern kingdom. So the the, uh, Israelites in the northern kingdom and then the, in a sense, the pagan Gentiles that are brought into the northern uh, kingdom, actually the idea was, Assyria's policy was, breed the nationalism out of them. And so guess who lives in the northern kingdom from the, Uh, 6th century BC onward, and that is a group of people called the Samaritans. How did the Jews feel about the Samaritans? Next of kin? You, You do read your Bible carefully enough, right, to know that the Jews were not very fond of the Samaritans. This is what makes the Good Samaritan parable in, in Luke 10 so inflammatory. The good guy's a Samaritan, right? If you were, if you were casting a movie in, in Jesus' day and you had villains, they would be typically Samaritans. Those guys would be, make good villains, right? Well, guess who gets the spirit next? The Samaritans. So it goes from the Jews to the Samaritans. The Samaritans are not full Gentiles, but they're not full Jews either. Okay. Then where does it go from there? Then it goes to Cornelius. What can you say about Cornelius? 
full-blown, bona fide Gentile. All right? And guess what? Now the gospel has gone from Jerusalem Jews to Samaritans, now to Gentiles. Now, here's the thing about Cornelius, is that although ethnically he's a full-blown Gentile, religiously he's committed to the God of Israel and to Torah. And so the Spirit comes on him, and what's happening? Peter says it. When the Spirit comes on Cornelius and his household, what prevents these from being baptized since they, Gentile though they be, received the Spirit in the same way we did, Jewish people, at the beginning? Okay? So then, so, so in other words, the Spirit coming and speaking in tongues is a, is a marker, it's a sign that the gospel is actually penetrating these expanding circles. So then by the time Ephesus comes along in Acts chapter 19, um, these people in Ephesus, they are full-blown Gentiles coming from a pagan culture. Yes, they'd heard of the baptism of John, but they're not even God-fearers, and the Spirit of God comes on them. And so what you have is that those expanding concentric circles after the pattern of Acts 1-8. So tongues served as a sign that the gospel was actually penetrating each successive, in a sense, ethnic barrier. The second purpose of tongues is Babel is reversed. So what happens on Pentecost is, again, these disciples um, baptized in the Spirit have the ability, right, to speak the mighty deeds of God in foreign languages and the multinational, multilinguistic crowd is hearing the Word of God in their own language and in, in this respect, it was a blessing, right? A blessing of universal proportion. And so what happens at Babel, God confuses the languages to divide the nations. What happens at Pentecost is that nations and tongues are actually now united through the gospel. And so Babel, the curse of Babel, is reversed. Dennis Johnson says the coalition of pride at Babel was shattered by the Lord's confusing of the rebels' tongues, thereby scattering the human race over the face of the whole earth. Pentecost signaled the reversal of this judgment, a drawing together of people from every nation that's under heaven, Acts 2.5, not to erect a monument to their own pride, but to glorify God for his salvation. And so what's going to happen is, um, is you see how uh, numbers one and two fit together. That gospel now is going to now unite what? Jews and Samaritans and Samaritans and Gentiles. This, by the way, is, is one of the incredible blessings of the gospel is that it creates one new man. It breaks down the dividing wall of Jew and Gentile and creates one new man through the blood of Jesus, right? The gospel is what unifies, so that the gospel actually obliterates the idea of, 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 of any kind of division, right? Whether Jew or Greek, bond or free, male or female, all one in Christ Jesus, 
this is what ends up happening, right? And uh, it, is, it is a sign that the division and the confusion of the judgment of Babel is being overturned or reversed. And then finally, tongues serve as covenant blessing and covenant curse, right? So f- think of Pentecost on that day. We've touched on this before. So the, the devout Jews that are there, and they're hearing the mighty deeds of God in their own languages, right? Because they're dispersed, but now they're gathered because of the Feast of Pentecost. They're hearing the good news of salvation, right? And so what do they do? They go, what is this? And then it opens up for Peter to be able to, pre- in other words, the, the sign of of tongues actually opens up for Peter to be able to preach the gospel to them and for them to experience the blessing of salvation. Because those that heard on that day, tongues was a sign of blessing by which they're now brought to faith in Jesus Christ. So then Peter preaches, and of course, uh, you know, what must we do uh, to be saved? Peter says, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus, right? And, uh, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And 3,000 were saved. But there was another group on that day. So for for the group that saved, tongues was a sign of blessing, hearing the words, uh, uh, works of God in their own language, but not everybody was saved that day. You had a whole group of people who did what? Mocked, scoffed, rejected. They were the ones who, by the way, said, huh, yeah, they're all drunk. To them, tongues was a sign of judgment, just as predicted in Deuteronomy 28, Isaiah 28, Jeremiah 5, we already have seen this. And so the leaders of Israel mock the word of God, and now God promises to judge them, right? And so Alec Motier in his commentary on Isaiah says, when the simple intelligibility of the word of God is refused, divine judgment falls in the shape of the unintelligible. And so what happens that day is, is that God saves the remnant of his people, they become, as it were, that the, the first layer, the foundational layer of the church, but then a partial hardening comes upon the rest of Israel, and so tongues, as Paul says in Romans 11, so tongues was a sign of judgment, the ultimate covenant curse. And so um, tongues ends up signaling, as it were, the, uh, the glorious inauguration of the new covenant era, and what's the new covenant era? It's the era of the Spirit. Okay? By the way, that's, that's Old Testament eschatology. A new covenant and the era of the Spirit. Okay? So I, I mentioned last week that 
Moses, what was Moses' wish in Numbers eleven twenty nine? I wish that they all prophesied, right? In other words, wish they all had the Spirit. Well, Joel prophesied that a day was coming in which they'd all have the Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, guess what? They all got the Spirit. And so the age of the Spirit, okay, which is a sign that Christ has ascended and reigns, Acts 2, 36, is now inaugurated. And the blessing of salvation now goes forth to the nations. Okay? And so I would say those are the the three primary purposes of tongues. Now, that brings us to the nature of tongues, okay? So <clears throat> there are two questions, and they're, they're totally related. And the first is, are the tongues that are mentioned in the book of Acts the same as the tongues that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians? You, you see why that's an important question, right? To ask the question in a different way, are the tongues foreign languages or are tongues ecstatic speech? Okay. Uh, I'm going to use a, a term. It's not original with me. Vern Poitras talks about this. When I say ecstatic speech, what I mean is what's called free vocalization. Okay? That is just a stream of consciousness in which you have uh, polysyllabic morphemes coming out of your mouth at a rapid rate. Okay? If you've ever heard speaking in tongues, you know what I'm talking about. So understand the two questions. Is the, are the tongues in Acts the same as the tongues in 1 Corinthians? And are tongues foreign languages or are tongues ecstatic speech or free vocalization? You understand why both of these questions are really important, right? If tongues, if tongues in Acts and tongues in 1 Corinthians are the same, then what's the answer to the second question? Foreign languages. One thing that you cannot escape is that what was happening in the book of Acts was not just some sort of ecstatic speech or, or a free vocalization. Uh, rather, it was foreign languages. You cannot get around that in the book of Acts. If you try to argue that what happens in 1 Corinthians is different, right? So in other words, okay, languages in Acts, but then uh, let's say ecstatic utterance in 1 Corinthians, then you have to actually ask a bigger question, and that is, why would there be two different types of gifts of tongues, right? Am I, am I the only one on track here? Are you, guys, are you guys with me? Are you with me? Okay. Now, what that means then is um, you, have to, you have to kind of make a decision as to what you think 
was going on in Corinth. All right? Now, let me flesh this out a little little further. So we see uh, there, there's, there's a few things in 1 Corinthians 14 that kind of gives us some sort of um, insight into what's going on. So first of all, um, tongues is communing with God by the Spirit, right? You get that in, in 14 too. Um, he's not speaking to men, but to God, okay, right? So there's a, a speaking to God by the Spirit that is identified as the gift of tongues. And so then the question is, is that speaking to God actually a foreign language or is it ecstatic speech? Free vocalization. Now, it's also identified as speaking mysteries which means incomprehensible. Okay. So then the question is, <laughs> I should have put a graph together, but I'm not very good at that kind of stuff. If, if speaking mystery, so speaking that which is incomprehensible, if it's foreign languages, it's incomprehensible because there's no interpreter. Okay. If it's ecstatic utterance, it's incomprehensible because it's not anything. All right? All right. So, so, you, so you, I hope that what you see is there are only so many options <laughs> that, you, that you can choose from when it comes to trying to understand tongues, right? So if it's incomprehensible because it is um, uh, a bunch of... Um, polysyllabic little uh, utterances put together real fast that doesn't mean anything, then it is speaking mysteries because nobody knows but God what's being said. And God probably says, oh, look, the German, Japanese, Swahili, you know, it's all mixed together, something, right? Now, stick with me. There's a third, there's a third thing that Paul says about tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 that end up being really ends up being really important and that is the one speaking in a tongue doesn't edify out there who does he edify himself okay so so just take these three things communing with god by the spirit okay either by a foreign language okay or ecstatic speech Speaking mysteries in the spirit, mysteries because either no interpreter to interpret or because it's ecstatic speech and it doesn't mean anything, okay? And by that I mean substantively, all right? And then it is for self-edification. In other words, Paul envisions the tongue speaker practicing glossolalia, right? The speaking in tongues as being edifying to himself or herself, but to nobody else. And the reason to nobody else is because nobody else can understand. By the way, Paul says, and if nobody else is going to understand, then keep it to yourself. Now, what is interesting is that he does not say, don't edify yourself. All right? 
All right, so now, and Nathan, you can bring up um, the next um, slide. I hope that we, uh, we have some time for questions. I'm sure we will. And then I, I don't know what I'll, how I'll answer any of them. This is really, it's it's um, interesting subject. So there's different views on the way tongues work, all right? So the first, mainstream Pentecostal. And by mainstream Pentecostal, I mean your traditional Pentecostal denominations, all right? Assembly of God, Foursquare, Church of God in Christ, so forth, okay? Glossolalia is the sign of the baptism in the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit in the assembly, all right? So you have entire denominations that have a doctrinal foundation that says this. The baptism in the Spirit is a post-conversion experience. In other words, you get saved, but then at some later time, you get the baptism in the Spirit, and the baptism of the Spirit is always evidenced by speaking in tongues. That, by the way, is straight from uh, the Assemblies of God um, uh, doctrinal uh, statement that the baptism in the Spirit is evidenced by speaking in tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. Okay? So for Pentecostals, they say, why tongues? It evidences baptism in the Spirit, and then why does everybody speak in tongues all at the same time, in a sense somewhat contrary to what Paul seems to say in 1 Corinthians 14, and the, the standard uh, uh, mainline Pentecostal answer is, is that mass speaking in tongues is a demonstration of the Spirit's presence in the church, okay? Now, some of you have a Pentecostal background and you know exactly that what I'm saying is that's just, that's the perspective, right? Right, George? Right? Okay. George is an old Oklahoma Pentecostal, right? Those are the best kind. Okay. What's that? Yeah, and, and tongues with an accent. All right? So... <laughs> And so most people think people from Oklahoma are speaking in tongues, but they're actually not. Okay. All right. So, so I, would, I would dispute both of those views of tongues, right? So first of all, I would dispute that the baptism in the Spirit is a post-conversion experience. And I would especially refute the idea that Tongues is the sign of the baptism in the Spirit. And the reason I would say that is because all of God's people are baptized in the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and Paul says not all speak in tongues, do they? Okay. As far as demonstrating the presence of the Spirit, I would say that ends up... You don't violate what the Bible says in order to show that you've got the Spirit. And the Bible says two or three in order, but only with an interpreter, okay? which, of course, is defied often in, um, and I've, I've told you before, I've been to these churches and for a number of years, I 
just that that's where I liked going was churches where people spoke in tongues and fell down and did all kinds of crazy things. And so um, I think that that is, is um, terribly mistaken. Okay, so the next is we're going to call it conscientious continuationist. Okay, you like that? A conscientious continuationist. So we talked about continuationists and cessationists a couple weeks ago. So glossolalia is only to be used in the assembly if it follows the strict boundaries set by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, I have a little asterisk by assembly because some continuationists would say, um, we prefer um, tongues to be exercised in small groups. Um, Others say, well, it's okay in the assembly, but you have to follow what Paul said. So if there's no interpreter, then you don't speak in tongues, okay? So you can see that the conscientious continuationist is trying to practice within the boundaries of the scriptures, all right? Now, notice the second is glossolalia as self-edification should be used uh, privately and devotionally, all right? So, uh, for instance, Sam Storms in his book, uh, the language of heaven, where he uh, argues in, in, in favor of the gift of tongues. Um, th- this is a big thing, is self-edification that's used privately and devotionally, all right? Um, I think there's a reason why that's the emphasis with conscientious continuationists. And I think the reason is because the idea of speaking in tongues with interpretation is so unbelievably rare. In fact, some of you will um, remember my good friend Tony Slavin that I went to seminary with. And uh, Tony was at an Evangelical Theological Society meeting. Sam Storms had presented his material And Tony went up and said, so you've been in this movement for uh, almost 40 years. Have you ever heard anybody give an interpretation? And he said, I have to say no, right? So if you're going to argue that tongues continue and you only do it in the way in the assembly that that 1 Corinthians 14 says, and that rarely happens, where are you going to put the emphasis? You're going to put the emphasis on the private devotional use of tongues, all right? Okay, so next is the cessationist. So cessationist arguments. There's two basic arguments for the idea of of the gift having ceased completely, all right? The first is what we could call the covenant curse argument. So glossolalia uh, was, bad grammar, was a sign of the covenant curse against Israel, once AD 70 occurred, there no longer remained a redemptive historical need for tongues, okay? So this view would say that uh, tongues is a sign of judgment, is primarily a sign of judgment on Israel. Once uh, Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70, the, the judgment is complete and the redemptive historical significance of tongues is no longer relevant, so uh, tongues ceased around AD 70, all right? So is that... I'm not asking if you agree, but does that make sense, right? Uh, 
The other view of, of tongues having ceased is what you could sort of call the cascading view, right? So glossolalia is functionally equivalent with prophecy, okay? Now, you can make that case when there's interpretation. Okay? By the way, that's, Paul, Paul makes reference to that. If they're speaking in tongues and then there's interpretation, that is virtually prophecy. Why? Because it's revelation that's intelligible. Okay? So this view would say, uh, speaking in tongues, functionally equivalent with prophecy, it's revelatory, okay? The apostolate was temporary, prophecy was temporary, tongues were temporary, okay? So in other words, the office of revelation, apostle, was temporary, okay? Then revelatory gifts, namely prophecy and tongues, were revelatory. God's not giving revelation in that sense anymore. Canon is closed, case closed, all right? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Next, <laughs> a partial cessationist position. First of all, they would say, um, let me put the second one first. Partial cessationists put stock in the cessationist arguments. Okay. They don't dismiss the cessationist arguments because, after all, they're partial cessationists. But they leave room for two things. One would be missions contexts in which the gift may still be possible. Okay? So, does the gospel go to places where there's no completed Bible in their language? Yes, all the time. And so this view says, is it possible that God could give the gift of glossolalia to missionaries for them to preach the gospel? And the answer is, yes, that is, uh, that is a possibility. The ordinary means is what? The missionary goes and learns the language. That's the ordinary means. Can God circumvent the ordinary means if he chooses. This view says, yeah, he can do that, all right? Now, it's this last one that's going to that's gonna, uh, get you a little bit, maybe. This view acknowledges that there may be <laughs> some form of free vocalization, okay? So, ecstatic speech, okay, that isn't actually a language, that is a form of meditation and worship, okay? Now, the important part of this is they're quick to say, and this is not what you see in the book of Acts, and it is probably not what you see in 1 Corinthians. So, J.I. Packer, in... uh, an absolutely fantastic book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. Out of curiosity, everybody's read J.I. Packer, Knowing God, right? Okay. If you haven't, you should get born again and then read it. Okay. Even Williams read it. <laughs> okay. But I would say that one of Packer's next best books 
is keep in step with the Spirit, okay? So lots of you have read Knowing God. What about keep in step with the Spirit, right? And uh, so I knew Charlie would have read it. Charlie, is that a great book? Okay, so there you have it. It's a fantastic book. Um, and what, what Packer suggests is this free vocalization is, um, it's not demonic, um, but it's not a foreign language and people engage in it and it is self-edifying and they are, um, they are in a sense, um, let's say, so remember, I, I can pray in the spirit or pray with my mind, sing with the spirit, sing with my mind. So there's a sense where it's more, uh, let's say, emotional. Okay. And Packer doesn't discount that as something that Christians may do. All right. Now, it's not what was happening in Acts. Okay. And so those are the those are the basic those are the basic views. So here's here's where I would uh, make some conclusions, tentative conclusions. I try to be really really sensitive and, um, you know, uh, ironic and peaceable and all that on these subjects. So first, the contemporary gift, so what we see today, all right, does not seem to be what is described in Acts or 1 Corinthians 1 to 12, or 12 to 14, okay? There seems to be a gap between what we see practiced today and what's described for us in the scriptures, all right? And I think that that's just simply, just sort of an honest um, uh, observation. The second conclusion that I would tentatively draw is that it seems to me that it seems incredibly improbable that the tongues being spoken of in 1 Corinthians would somehow be qualitatively different than the tongues in the book of Acts. It, it, seems, it seems like that's a pretty insurmountable uh, argument to try to make that, okay, well, you've got tongues, and that's how they did it in Acts. It was real languages, but then when you get to 1 Corinthians, it's not. Okay. I can't see any good reason why you, when you get to 1 Corinthians, you would argue that they're not the same as what you see in the book of Acts. Number three, um, and this is, this, this view, this idea makes nobody happy, all right? So those who practice a form of free vocalization are not necessarily demon-possessed. Okay? I have friends that want to say anybody that speaks in tongues must be demon-possessed. At least I've read about people that aren't my friends. It may be a form of personal worship for them, but it doesn't seem to be the gift of tongues, right? So if somebody comes to me and says, I believe I have the gift of tongues, right? I say, well, what does that mean? And you go, well, I have a prayer language, okay? okay? I have a prayer language. I'm not gonna freak out about it. I'm not gonna like raise my left hand, put my right hand on your forehead and say, come out, foul spirit, Okay? Um, I don't, I don't think that that's true, right? So if somebody says, I think I have a prayer language and they get edified when they are in their private devotions by free vocalization and they want to call it tongues, um, I'm going to say to myself, well, I don't think it's a foreign language. And I think the tongues in the Bible were a foreign language, but whatever you're doing, um, enjoy yourself. 
<laughs> here's, <laughs> here's the bottom line. This is what, this is what chapter 14 is all about. Pursue love. And how do you pursue love? By pursuing edification. Okay. And how do you pursue edification? You pursue intelligibility. Okay. That is, if it's to be edifying to you, you have to understand it. All right? So I think that's 1 Corinthians 14 in a nutshell. Pursue love, uh, pursue edification, pursue intelligibility. All right? Okay, we do actually have a little bit of time for questions. And I'm just going to say that uh, because Charlie's older and has been around longer than I have, um, I will, uh, any questions that I'm uncomfortable with, I will just defer to Charlie. Okay. Any questions? You guys are way too easy. Yes, I see that hand, Gina. Our tongues and prophecy for today. All right. Yeah, so what I would say is that insofar as prophecy and tongues are direct divine revelations from God, okay, which I think in, in, in the passage you have to conclude that, that they are, that that, which we, I designated last week as capital P prophecy, all right, I would say that that is actually no longer necessary now that we have a complete Bible, okay? I think that Paul is, um, is clear in Ephesians 2.20 that the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. So there's a foundational sense where God is giving revelation in the early church to sustain it, strengthen it, grow it. And then the church reaches a level of maturity with the fullness of Scripture. That doesn't mean that I would... Uh, I would also affirm that the Holy Spirit uh, supernaturally helps us in, in preaching or in counseling or even speaking to somebody where the Spirit of God may give, you know, may prompt your mind to say something to somebody. I don't want to deny that at all. I think that that happens, and, uh, and, and I bank on it happening, all right? Um, and then... On tongues, I would say, I don't think that the tongues that you see in Acts are normative for today, right? In other words, I don't think that this ends up being a standard for, for churches. I think that by saying not normative, you leave room for uh, exceptions. And I think that uh, leaving room for exceptions is wise. And then if somebody tells me they have a prayer language, I don't have a stroke. Well, <clears throat> that's, a, that's a tricky question, all right? And the reason, did everybody hear her question? Okay. Um, let, me, let me rephrase it, and if, if, if it's wrong, you can tell me. Um, if somebody is speaking in tongues and prophesying over you, could that be because they're demon-possessed. Is that fair enough? Here's, here's my problem with a simple answer to that, is I would say that there are probably many people who think that they're speaking in tongues and prophesying and actually are being 
God's mouthpiece to that person. So, so my problem is, is that I don't think it happens like that today to begin with, all right? But if you have somebody that's doing that, they may be doing it with absolutely sincere motives and just be doing it in the flesh, all right? And we know that those kinds of like prophetic words often actually are just, end up just being wrong, okay? And there's just, there's a whole host of, I think that they can be harmful to people, okay? Um, Really harmful to people. Because if I think that I'm giving you God's word, okay, this is God's word for you, and I turn, and and I don't have my Bible in verse 6 or whatever, um, and I'm just saying that, I could end up really harming you in a lot of ways. I could harm you in ways of, in terms of giving a false hope about something. Um, one famous preacher had a, a son that was, uh, this was a, a while ago, it's not a recent event. A so-called prophet in his church said, the, the son got really sick and the, and the guy said, your son's going to live. The Lord told me your son's going to live. Well, then the son died. And it absolutely devastated this guy and his wife. And actually, they, they never psychologically recovered from that. Um, but what if I tell you, the Lord told me that you're supposed to go and do this or go to this country or whatever. And, and all of a sudden, you now are bound in your conscience. I need to be a, a missionary to the New Hebrides, right? Um, and God is not intending to send you to the New Hebrides, right? I mean, so I think that there can be a lot of damage. Now, I will also grant that there are times where people seem to have an extraordinary display of, just call it supernatural gifting, and they are, in fact, empowered by demons, okay? I think that that is absolutely possible. Satan appears as an angel of light, okay? Um, there, is a, there is a sense where, um, you know, in Second Thessalonians 2, that Satan comes with power, signs, and false wonders, okay? So do I think that that's a possibility? The answer is yes. I'm not going to just simply say that about everybody that does that, all right? But that would be my my long answer okay all right lily and then we're yeah 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 is it possible that paul is including non-language non-human language it's possible but it's it's not overly convincing to me but it's possible yeah in acts 2 that's absolutely true All right. Well, I hope this has been um, fun and edifying, and um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that we would be just charitable with people that disagree and just continue to love uh, each other. And we do thank you for the Holy Spirit, and we thank you for his power. We thank you for his gifts, and we pray, Father, that we would use them for the edification of the body, to build the body up in love. In Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, 
please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.